On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Chad Kim about Augustine and humility. So we cover all sorts of topics like why was humility such an important topic for Augustine? What kinds of people attended services in North Africa while Augustine was pastor? What made Augustine an effective preacher? How does preaching work as a kind of sacrament for Augustine? And how can a sermon be what Augustine would call a spiritual exercise? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where a podcast is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious, we mean both a serious conviction about theology uh, and a serious critical mind as it comes to all sorts of ideas and arguments, examining with them with the, the strongest of, I don't know, abilities. But it also means things like charity and curiosity, where we should be uh, kind to to those who are different than us and be interested in what they think and why they think it. So we've tried to endeavor to create an intellectual culture that prizes things like that, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Chad Kim. Chad is, uh, there's something, there's cool stuff about this. So he's he's from the like same area that I'm from. So we have like all these cool like things that in common. So I, I think it's fun for just that. But he's also doing some really interesting work. He's a Protestant publishing with Catholic University of America Press, which tells you that he knows what he's talking about. He's very serious about these things. So this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about Augustine's theology of preaching and humility. So this should be a great time. So Chad, before I get started with, with anything, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you stumble into thinking about Augustine and, and his theology of preaching? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks again, Jordan, for having me on. And I know he's not feeling his best, uh, but I appreciate uh, working with me. And uh, so we've, we've tried to do this a couple of times. So uh, glad to be able to finally talk with Jordan. And yeah, so uh, we were talking a little beforehand. I kind of gave my background. And actually, what I one thing I didn't say was I went to a Christian high school where I did Latin uh, starting in middle school. And then we read a Well, someone gave me Augustine's Confessions. I actually can't remember if we were required to read Augustine's Confessions in high school, uh, but I had a copy of it. Um, and I lost a friend of mine in high school. Um, and uh, in book four of the Confessions, if anybody is familiar with the text, he loses a close friend of his. Um, and just reading Augustine's description of loss and... Um, grieving and pain and some of that stuff you know i like when i try to when i teach it with my students i say even if you don't share his theological convictions even if you don't understand where he's coming from if you just read his description of grief um you can connect to augustine um it just he's just a his his humanity his um his heart, you know, as as he would say, just comes straight through the page, um, and it's the, and so that's what first connected me. Um, I like to joke that he'd talk about evil as a privation and all these other things that sounded cool, and I didn't know what it meant, but I was like, well, that sounds good. So, uh, you know, that's kind of my my entree into um, Augustine. But that, that's that's awesome. So, w- tell me a little bit when I think Augustine's theology of preaching. I've heard countless times from people like who, I don't know, they're like, they're in the trendy cool church stuff. And they're like, the early church, they didn't do preaching. That's just not something that's there. So when we talk about Augustine and preaching, does he actually, like when he, when we're talking about preaching, is that actually something that we would have some sort of context for? Or is it, or is it something completely different? Hmm. Yeah, let me. I, I've tried to think about how to crack that nut. Um, yeah, it's it's not preaching. It's not preaching like I grew up with. I'll say it like that. Um, and so some of it has to do with uh, yeah. So uh, accessing Augustine's preaching can be difficult for the modern listener at times or the modern reader. Um, and there are a few few different reasons uh, for that. Um, but 
Um, and just to make the transition, my my book is on Augustine and humility, and then preaching. So I, I, you know, the Confessions features in it, which I love. Uh, but I got interested in his preaching just because I was curious what he was like uh, as a person and as an individual. And so one of the things that that I think does make him interesting as far as his preaching is the 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 sermons, particularly. There's a collection of sermons called the Sermones ad Populum, uh, which are the sermons to the people, and they're the only un edited texts, uh, at least as far as he indicates uh, to Pisidius, his, his kind of uh, student and biographer. Um, and, he, and he says, I wanted to edit these, I couldn't. And so what we end up having from his sermons are basically the bare record from a note taker um, who would come along with him as he preaches. And so um, if anybody's read on book four, book four in On Christian Teaching, he talks about the need to preach extemporaneously and pay attention to the people around him. So I think in, to some extent, it can be difficult to follow his sermons because they feel a little stream of consciousness, um, which they are. So they're not tightly organized around, you know, well, the old saying in Baptist circles was uh, three points at a poem. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's not as tightly organized as that, which can make it difficult to follow. And the other thing that can make them difficult to follow at times for the contemporary reader, if you were raised again, as I was in a Protestant context there, you know, he is making some connections that I wouldn't see uh, because he's making connections to um sort of to the underlying language. He's moving back and forth through different books. So it doesn't follow like a historical critical or a grammatical historical kind of exegesis. So his exegesis, he would call more spiritual or maybe allegorical <laughs> and uh, which uh, Calvin chastises him for in his biblical commentaries. But um, yeah, so it, so those things can make it difficult to kind of connect to him. Uh, but what makes him compelling to me and what makes the sermons compelling is that you you actually see him uh, engaging with his audience. Well, this is a safe space, so you can say that Calvin's <laughs> wrong. Um, <laughs> but really, why this is a little bit off the cuff, but I'm just curious, as you're talking about his sermons, why is, is it that so many of us don't read uh, historical thinkers' sermons? Oftentimes, like, when people get really interested in, like, I want to do retrieval, you're going to go pick out like the magnum opus, the city of God, or, or, or like the confessions, or, and you're going to do that for any number of figures. But the, the first recourse is almost never, let me go read their sermons. Why, why is that? Yeah. Good question. Um, I think in part, um, they're, they're not used as much, um, in later writing. So if there, there's a great three volume work by Oxford, the historical reception of Augustine. Um, and you know, so when you go there and you see, okay, what was Luther reading? What was Calvin reading? What was Aquinas reading? Um, they're almost never referring to the sermons in those doctrinal or dogmatic works. That being said, his sermons are extremely important to Caesarius of Arles and some of the um, the later uh, medieval preachers. They actually a lot of them actually would just reread Augustine's sermons, so they don't seem to be as tightly connected to uh, the sort of. Um, more reflective, uh, uh, dog, I, I, I don't know what other word to use, but like sort of uh, systematic treatises. So you won't find them as sources as much for later thinkers. Um, and so I think that kind of makes people less likely to engage them. Um, and, but they're arranged. So sometimes figuring out how they're arranged can be difficult and it can, you know, I mean, he has 500, 550, depending on how you count them, in the Sermones ad Populum alone. Um, and so, you know, and some of them will be really long. Some of them will be really short. Uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're unwieldy in a way. And it's harder to find like a direct reference or a, an entree point. Yeah. So as I think about your book in particular and the emphasis on humility, why is it for Augustine that he finds humility so important? And, and is this unique to, to Augustine compared to others around his period? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good question. So um, I, you know, I don't do as much um, in terms of in the book in terms of like his predecessors and and uh, those who follow him. Um, that said, um, like 
so Alastair McIntyre and, and others will note that like humility is not a virtue uh, for the um, Platonists or the Aristotelians when they're list, you know, when the ancient uh, uh, sort of pagan or Greek philosophers are mentioning the virtues, they're not mentioning humility. So it's it's uh, there. There's some debate about debate about this among like some German classicists from the mid 20th century who want to say that there are a few cases where they might say something favorable, uh, but almost no one really think takes it seriously among the ancients as a virtue. So in that respect, Augustine is unique. Um, uh, and, you know, in his um, response to sort of the, the non-Christian tradition, um, as far as, uh, you know, other people before him, no one places as uh, heavy of an emphasis on it. And part of it is it's part of the fabric of his whole thought, right? So, I mean, what what he the way that he characterizes what a, uh, Adam does is a prideful grasping for what can only be given, right? Um, and so at the very heart of sin is pride um, and what Christ comes to do. And I work on this a little bit in the book. And actually my, my next book that I'm working on is Augustine on soteriology. And so some of this is work that I'm doing in other respects, but the way that he understands literally the work of Christ is the application of humility uh, to a, a, like a tumor of pride. Um, and so because that is integral to what Christ does, it's integral to the way that he thinks about humility. Um, and the the one thing that I mentioned in the book in terms of his where he uh, may have gotten some of this emphasis, Ambrose actually preaches on humility in the same sermons that he's preaching about the letter kills, but the spirit gives life, which is his famous key in book six to unlocking the scriptures. So as he unlocks the scriptures with Ambrose's preaching, um, he is actually listening to Ambrose teach about humility uh, alongside this very famous uh, phrase um, that 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 is kind of for him the the way in and he goes ah okay now I can read the scriptures yeah okay so give me a little bit of a teaser before I forget about his soteriology it can Protestants claim him when it comes to this or not <laughs> well <laughs> so I, I want to say yes um now what the so there's a couple different ways to go about this so like i'm trained as a historical theologian so it which can mean lots of different things to lots of different historical theologians uh which for but for the way that we were taught at SLU was primarily um trying to explain a thinker in their context um and sort of look at their uh, like the 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 people that come before them look at uh, you know how it works within their own thought and not necessarily how does that fit with a particular theological tradition um, so that all that being said when I think about his soteriology I, there's no reason uh, that a Protestant couldn't receive it now you know there is the famous line from B.B. Uh, Warfield that uh, the the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's uh, doctrine of grace over the doctrine of the church. Um, and so the sort of the application of salvation through the sacraments is a very Catholic way of thinking about it. Um, but, but in actually trying to explain how salvation works, uh, uh, you know, there's no reason that a Protestant couldn't make use of his language. And part of the emphasis that I'll draw on, on Augustine himself is you know, when we think about the word salvation, the Greek word soteria, the, the Latin word salus, um, and even actually the Syriac word uh, as well, all have a connotation of health. Um, and so one of the, the main emphases in Augustine is actually that sin is a disease um, and Christ is the doctor who applies the healing remedy um, and thus saves, which means to heal. Um, and so for, for him, that is the primary kind of coloring and uh, sort of uh, image uh, at play for, for Augustine. So I think that that's all within bounds. I think, and I just think T.F. Torrance is wrong uh, about the Latin heresy, but. Um. <laughs> well, T.F. Torrance is wrong about a number of things, so that's okay. I'll so go, I'll go harder on him than I would on Calvin, I guess. But I like, <laughs> I actually really like T.F. Torrance, but I just, it makes me so sad because I'm like, oh man, you just didn't read Augustine very well. Oh, well, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I like a lot of what Torrance is up to, but at the same time, I'm like, what, why? <laughs> why would you do that? Um so you mentioned early on on Augustine him being like extemporaneous. Mm -hmm. 
did that help actually help him as an effective preacher, do you think? Or did that hinder him in some ways? Yeah. Um, well, I think it hinders him as far as the reception of his sermons are concerned. <laughs> um, so it does make it. And, and actually, we know that um, Cesarius and others uh, edited his sermons. Um, so when they were when they were sort of repackaged and reused in the medieval period, um, that it was never as long as it was like. So other people come through and edit. Um, and so, uh, you know, that would be one thing to say. So, yes, it hurt him as far as his reception. As far as his effectiveness for the individual North African who would go to hear him, uh, one of one of the sermons that I I spend a little bit of time with in the book uh, is is actually him talking the readers through his exposition of the Mary and Martha story, um, and um, and so part of what he does in that section is he says uh, he tries to set the stage for them. So there's an ancient rhetorical sort of skill called ekphrasis. Um, and ekphrasis is, is, is uh, in Latin, sometimes it's uh, translated as evidencia. So we get the word evidence, but that is to like draw something before the eyes so that it's able to be seen. And so Augustine is very good as a rhetorician at drawing a picture, painting a picture. Um, and so, uh, but we, what's, fu- what's interesting about the sermons as a record of his engagement with the people as he literally says as he's as he's preaching in the notes that we have uh he says i can see that you're delighting and i'm also delighting because i see that you're getting it um and you are seeing christ for who he is um and just like mary sitting at the feet of jesus we are both sitting at the feet of jesus our head uh as he teaches the body who he is um and so it's like it you know you 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 do kind of like and there, those the, like that's one really great moment, and they're not as many as I would like there to be. But like that gives you a little bit of the like the character of Augustine. Like he, I mean, he's just excited. Uh, he he tells in one of his early letters, um, I think he's writing to Olypius in Carthage. Uh, he talks about weeping with his congregation over their sin, um, and so it's like you know, so you, you know, when you think about Augustine as preacher, and and people will tell me this uh, in my like reviews in classes often, like people people I get some really negative reviews, but if I get a positive one, it's like, well, Doctor Kim really seemed to care, um, and and so uh, you know, it's like I don't know what he was talking about. He didn't always have a plan you know yada 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 we'll get some negative reviews but they're like but he cared and i feel like you know that's one of the things that comes through augustine sermons is like he like man he was weeping uh he was laughing he was enjoying it and he was he was literally helping them along to try to see what he was seeing in the scriptures uh the truth of who jesus was but and is i like that illustration so I think a lot of us, or at least in our popular imaginations, when we think of people like Augustine, what comes to mind is a picture of either like this really isolated monk who lives like in an actual ivory tower or something like what we would think of as a theologian or professor today, not so much as like weeping with a congregation. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the church services that he has in North Africa and the responsibilities that he has there... What does that look like on a daily basis for him? And do you think that really shapes his theology in particular ways? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, part of the reason I went undertook this uh, dissertation, the, the the book, The Way of Humility, that, that I'm kind of working off of, uh, was to sort of see what it was like to be with Augustine with his people. Um, and, you know, like I had read Confessions, I'd read City of God, you know, you read some of the big treatises, uh, but but I was I, I was curious in the sermons, what what do we get? Um, and we do find uh, Augustine saying things like, I've delayed finishing City of God because, look, I'm preaching every day. Um, and so we get if you read the like his letters, he makes it very clear he is uh, he's trying to be there for his people. Um, he never travels again. Right. So after he leaves Milan um, in the in what, the late 380s or 390, um, he never goes back, um, never travels again. Um, he does, I mean, never travels again overseas. He goes to Carthage, uh, and he goes to Carthage a fair bit um, for various councils and such. Uh, but he but he stays fairly local um, and, and you know, never, quite, uh, never really moves. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, 
I think he, you know, that's what he considered his real task uh, was to be a preacher first. I mean, uh, you know, there's like some people have tried to guess how many sermons he would have preached. Um, I've heard guesses ranging from 5,000 to 10,000 sermons um, because, I mean, you know, you consider he lived a really long life um, in in ancient terms. Uh, so 355 to 430, um, you know, 75 years. Um, and basically from 391, 392 through 430, he was preaching. So he's preaching for uh, for almost 40 years, 38 years, something like that. Um, so yeah, so that was what he thought of what he was doing. So it's not, it's definitely not an ivy t- ivory tower. He is a monk. Um, he is, you know, does lead a monastery at Hippo. Uh, his sister leads the convent next door. People often forget that he has a sister and a brother. Um, and um, he doesn't mention them in the confession. So they kind of get left out often in the retelling. Um, but yeah, so I think, uh, I think that is true about who he is. I mean, as far as how it shapes his actual theological work, um, Patu Burns wrote a book on Augustine's preaching in the interim between when I signed my contract and when it was published. Um, <laughs> so it was a little, uh, frustrating in some ways. And also I had to go back and read it and make sure I footnoted it because Patu Burns is a great scholar. Um, and one of the things that he does, uh, that I don't do in my book is try to look at the development of Augustine's thinking throughout his life via the sermons. Um, and I'm not, I am a little skeptical that that can be done because the sermons are really hard to date. Um, But one of the things that Patu points out, uh, uh, Dr. Burns points out, uh, is that Augustine doesn't preach very much on the Pelagian controversy or any of the details in the Pelagian controversy. So I think, uh, you know, one interesting thing to think about are what what are the things that Augustine will say um, in, 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 in the sermon? And what are the things that he will write to particular interlocutors um, who he feels need uh, maybe reproof um, or something like that? Uh, and so he is different. Um, there, is a, there is a very clear kind of um, approach uh, when he's preaching versus when he, you know, write, he's writing to Julian of Aclanum, who, you know, probably was – uh, as, as, as at least as eloquent, if not more so than Augustine himself. So how does the concept of humility track or c- contrast with his concept of wisdom? Mm. So I'm fr- good friends with Benjamin Quinn. He did his dissertation on Augustine and, and wisdom. And I'm just curious how these two things go together or don't go together. Yeah, actually I interviewed, uh, uh, Dr. Quinn, Benjamin Quinn, uh, for the podcast. So uh, I, ha- it has been a year or so since I've read his book. Um, <laughs> yeah, so wisdom. Uh, I mean, so, you know, like to some extent in De Trin and on the Trinity, Augustine thinks that, uh, you know, the full sort of wisdom uh, that we will receive when we become uh, God, you know, like God, become gods, depending on how you want to use the language. Uh, so my advisor uh, wrote the book on Augustine and deification. Um, but, um, you know, so that there's a sort of eschatological um, uh end to wisdom. Um, and whereas like humility is something, uh, you know, that we can, we, we you know, he, he, well, actually, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's a couple different ways to think about this. And as I started to say that I, I wanted to change what I was saying a little bit and say, you know, he, he very specifically says that humility is salvific uh, in, conv- in the confession. So he has this kind of interesting notion that it's actually a, a Christ as humble uh, and, and Christ's humble, like, humble nature as he becomes uh, one with humanity uh, in the incarnation or as he is one with humanity in the incarnation, uh, that humility is, is literally salvific. Um, And so, and, and that goes to, you know, sort of the antidote to pride is humility in ancient uh, rhetorical or in ancient sort of uh, medicinal theory. uh, Basically how you cured was by applying the opposite. Um, And so humility being applied to our, uh, our, our pride. I guess I need to think more exactly where, I mean, so the question of wisdom, sometimes, sometimes humility is an intellectual virtue. Um, And if, if the question is, you know, how does, how is one also wise and humble? Um, Then, then that could, is that, is that kind of where you were wanting to go? Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't totally know. I'm just curious to be partly just curious. I, uh, you know, I have a follow-up question on, on these sort of things. 
is humility even a theological virtue? So I know there's people like if you get into the weeds on like sort of the ethical sort of stuff, you've got these distinctions of theological virtues and these other types of virtues. Like where does humility even fit? I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so Matthew Wilcoxon wrote a book on uh, hu- divine humility, um, and uh, I was able to talk with him a little bit about that as well. Uh, but, you know, he talks – I think uh, in his book he mentions that Aquinas uses it as a propedeutic. Like it's not – like you, I think like you're saying, he essentially goes with Aquinas – or excuse me, uh, Aristotle um, saying that it's really not a, a true virtue in that sense. Um, and and Will Coxon is making the argument that it is a virtue, um, and he begins with Augustine on that, which I think is right. I mean, I think uh, you know, I, I guess I'm going to have to say that that I think humility um, humility is a virtue. If if I guess I mean I don't know. Uh, I think he wants to say that it's a a, a divine. Um, uh, divine attribute, um, and that's there's you know some questions about. I mean. I don't think anyone in the tradition says that in the same way that Will Coxon does. Um, and so um, I guess you, you'd have to think about how that is possible. Um, but I, I think the, um, I mean, I think humility, there's something about humility that is uh, submission. Um, and so that, that's something that comes out in some of the other uh, parts of the tradition. But um yeah, I think uh, you know. I think you'd have to get get into some distinctions about God and God's self uh, versus uh, God in the economy of salvation, um, and in order to not fall into kind of a Wayne Grudem uh, problem of the eternal subordination of the Son. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not really willing to go that direction either. But yeah. So does does for for Augustine does his preaching. Or as he think about it, as he thinks about it, is that like a sacrament uh, of any sort? And how does that really function for him? Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so, um, <laughs> I, I guess I to to be sort of um, self disclosing a little bit. I've re- I've realized that uh, like I I don't feel always as well equipped to do the the deep philosophical theology, <laughs> and so sometimes I'm like. I know how to talk around it, but I'm never, you know, I'm never fully convinced of where I want to stand. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, but as far as like the sacrament uh, is concerned, he does think that there's something that happens in the words of the sermon. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the sacrament gives uh, uh, the reality, which it is a sign of in a way that a regular sign doesn't. Right. So in Augustine's sign theory, like, you know, smoke signals fire, but smoke isn't fire. Um, and so the fire is the thing that smoke is a signal of, as he says in on Christian teaching. Um, and, so, but the sacrament does something unique, right? There's a way in which it gives that thing to us, uh, not yet in reality, as in it will be in the eschaton, but in a different way than just any old sign. Um, and so he does think that the 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 excuse me the words of the sermon function in a kind of sacramental way because. Uh, when one preaches, one has to begin with the scriptural text um, and beginning with the scripture is for Augustine beginning with the word. Um, and so as the word speaks through scripture and then as the preacher pronounces that word, uh, there is some giving of God's self um, in the moment of the sermon. So there is a kind of encounter uh, with Christ through the words of the preacher uh, as a kind of sacrament, right? So Augustine is not limited by the the medieval definitions of sacraments, the seven sacraments. Um, And uh, so he has a much, he has a much more loose use of the term. Um, And another thing about trying to think with Augustine on some questions, whether it be uh, the contrast or the, how humility might work with wisdom, just to, to return to that for a minute um, is, is, you know, uh, Frederick van Fleeteren, a a Dutch scholar says that, um, that you have to be careful with Augustine because he's always a rhetorician first. Um, and, and so he's not thinking as systematically as Aquinas wants to think. Um, and so when you think like a rhetorician, you're always looking for different words for things. Um, and you're not always thinking about consistency as the greatest goal. Um, and so I think that's one difficulty when, and, and, you know, we can see this in the medieval tradition as they try to receive Augustine. Um, you know, you can have Scot- uh, Scotus Erugina and, and 
and got Chalkovor Bay both using Augustine to argue two extremely contrary positions. Uh, so th- this is another, you know, difficult. I mean, and shoot, Luther and uh, well, Luther, Calvin, Aquinas, all of the above, right? They're all thinking they're drawing from Augustine, um, depending on you know essentially which Augustine <laughs> uh, and and at what point. So. Uh, you know, those would be some other things that I would say just as cautions or at least as things like when you get into Augustinian studies, you've got to be aware of. Uh, but yeah, so he anyway, in terms of how sacraments work, he has a much broader notion of sacrament and very much thinks uh, that that the preacher has a unique task and a unique role, especially given an audience that's largely illiterate. Right. So uh, we think that roughly 80, 85 percent um, of the people listening to Augustine on the Giving Sunday are not able to read. Um, so if they're not able to read, the only time they're able to hear uh, the word is in the proclamation of the word. Um, and, and so that is also going to sort of uh, emphasize the sacramentality of his preaching. Very interesting. Especially that, that point about him being a rhetorician first is very, very helpful. So <laughs> I'll take that. I'm always learning things in these interviews, so I love it. So I put that in my cap and I'll use that. So when we think about Augustine and his sermons in particular, would he call them a spiritual exercise of sorts? And and if he would, what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Latin phrase there is an exercitatio animi. Um, and that is, we, we get the word like exercise. He's sort of exercising the soul. Um, and so one of the sermons that I work through in the book uh, is um, Sermon 152. And he's working through Romans 7 and Romans 8. Uh, and actually, after my uh, dissertation was finished and basically the manuscript was completed, I got Han Luen Kanzer Kamlin's uh, book on Augustine and the Will. And she talks about how Augustine changes his view on Romans 7 and Romans 8, whether or not it's under the law or under grace. Um, anyway, she does some really good stuff on the development there. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about how Augustine reads that sermon and how it relates to this idea of an exercise of the soul is Augustine's not actually always sure himself how he's going to interpret a passage. Um, and and so there's, there's a sense in which uh, as he's trying to preach and work through how he hears Christ speaking in the text, um, he is asking the listener to uh, sort of um, expand their own minds as they're thinking through a really difficult thing. Um, and and I think Paul says the phrase condemn sin with sin or through sin. Um, and there's kind of a, you know, it's like, okay, well, what what is Paul really saying? Um, and Augustine thinks that it's an exercise of the soul because the soul has to be willing to say, I don't understand what that means. But there must be a truth about it because God is speaking. And so Augustine says that it creates this chasm where we have a desire for more of God. Um, we have a desire for more knowledge, uh, but we're not there yet. Um, and so that chasm and then that desire uh, that that grows um, as we recognize that we don't fully understand all the things that we want to know about God, it, it increases the capacities of our soul uh, to be filled up with God. Um, and so he thinks that this is literally training the soul um, to to uh, t- and then you know and then he says that what that does is is force us as hearers as listeners uh, to pray um, because and for Augustine he at a few places he says that prayer is just the desire for God um, like that like at at root all prayer is is desiring God's self. Um, and so, uh, so when you read a sermon or, or you hear a sermon or you read a passage and you don't understand what it means, but you desire to know what it means and you desire more of God's self in that passage, uh, he says that you turn to the inner teacher. Um, and when you turn to Christ who lives within you as, as a Christian, uh, that you're, you're, you're basically training your soul how to pray and how to become one with God in the moment of the sermon. Um, and so that that same sermon 152, he begins and he says, this is going to be really hard. I don't know how we're going to get through it. I need your prayers. Um, and and he's and he and, and the, the great thing about the, the Latin word for prayer orare, uh, is we get the word orator and oration. Um, and so when he tells them to pray, he tells them to orate, uh, to speak. Um, and, and it's, but he's playing on the word because they all know that they're not going to speak in the same way that 
that he will. Um, but but they are supposed to be speaking to God um, on his behalf uh, while they they both desire um, for the presence of God in the moment of the sermon. Wow, that's awesome. So as I think about Augustine, as a preacher in particular, what would you say for pastors today are the, the biggest takeaways from his, his just overall ministry of preaching and his theology of preaching? Yeah, it's a great question. My sister says that uh, if I really want to sell a book, I'll write a book that's just the question you just asked me. <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, no, nobody wants to buy a $100 book from Catholic U. You're not going to sell those. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, so it's, it's a great question. What are the things that they can take from it? Um, I, I think that Augustine just shows you a little bit of himself. Um, and, you know, it's hard. I mean, every person's going to have their own style. Um, but but that's part of who, you know, who I think I have what I part of how I have learned from Augustine um, is to be willing to show a little bit of myself um, in the sermon. So some of my joy, some of my delight uh, to experience the moment with people. Um, and, and be, uh, and just be comfortable with that. Uh, he'll admit things that he doesn't know or doesn't understand. Um, and so that's part of, uh, some of what he has to teach is, and you know, that's a, that, you know, of course that's a kind of humility. Um, I don't think Augustine purely means intellectual humility as we mean it all the time, right? Like he doesn't just mean to be humble as in, uh, you know, don't think that you're right. I mean, Augustine thinks he's right. I mean, if you've read any of the, the Pelagian controversies or the Donatist controversies, he's convinced he's right. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, but all that being said, uh, you know, you, you sh he also is very willing in other letters to admit stuff that he doesn't know. Um, and so I think there there's something um, in there can be something endearing about that, right? Like, oh, shoot, like, Augustine's a 75 year old man who's been studying this stuff his whole life. And if he doesn't have all the answers, uh, you know, maybe it's okay that I don't. Right. But he still is, is absolutely and utterly confident. Um, about who God is, right? So he preaches on the Trinity, um, you know, obviously a very difficult topic, uh, but he's, he preaches about it with confidence um, about the things that he's sure of um, and and also with, with sort of, uh, you know, kind of an intellectual humility about the things that he doesn't. Um, I'm, I, this is one that may get me into a little more trouble, but, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Probably you shouldn't listen too much to uh, historical grammatical uh, exegesis uh, and uh, basically like, you know, I mean, it's fine if you think that Paul may or may not have said that. But Augustine's more than happy to, to gloss scripture with scripture no matter where it comes from. So we can call this a canonical reading if we want. Um, I mean, Augustine you know doesn't know that language uh, from Childs or what have you, but um you know, so I think he he doesn't he is not worried in the least about seeing Christ in the Old Testament and seeing Christ speak uh, in the Psalms um, and just sort of a, a reckless abandon when it comes to God speaking in the Scriptures. Um, and so he's not he's not worried. Is that or and you know another one again? I, I just I just taught uh, the confessions for the Greystone Institute, um, and at the very end of the confessions, uh, he talks. He says, "Did Moses intend to say this?" I have no idea. Uh, who knows what Moses would have meant? <laughs> um, and, you know, and so there's like, you know, trying to chase too hard the original intent of the author, um, you know, probably is going to make you a little bit more boring. Um, and Augustine's like, I mean, if we're looking for the original intent of the author, we should be looking for God. Um, <laughs> right. And and so I think I, I, you know, sometimes I think that a lot of preachers could probably loosen up a little bit um, and and not be so worried if this was going to pass the muster in a you know class and, you know, New Testament studies or Old Testament studies. And they don't know if Paul was the author or not the author, or, you know, whoever. Um, who cares? <laughs> like, I mean, Augustine actually, eh, I mean, that's me, not Augustine. He would say, you sh he actually does say you should care in a sense, but don't feel burdened by it. So follow up on that. I, I think there, this, again, this is, uh, for some reason, all the hot button things you've got hit are things that I think uh, most of our listeners probably are cheering on. So <laughs> delighting in the Augustinian uh, approach to scripture, uh, uh, over against a strict wooden literal grammatical historical approach. But I, I want to take up arms for the grammatical historical person <laughs> who's saying, oh, wait, wait, wait. 
this sounds too loose. Yeah. So maybe they have some like, okay, I'm fine with some spiritual interpretation here and there. But when I put forth like the classic example that I was shown when I was trained in a literal grammatical historical undergrad. And one of the examples was Augustine's like, par- like what, how he did this or what the, the parable of the uh, good Samaritan, mm. everything like has a meaning. Yeah. And it was like, clearly this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, Cause this is way like, just, this is just like way too much. How, how should we think about like, is there a sense in which, yeah, maybe there is a little bit too much looseness yeah. when we think about this. Or should we just say, yeah, we, we need to get over it. <laughs> what What is um, – Calvin is always looking for the perspicuity of Scripture. No, what is the – the is that the phrase that he uses? Or well, that would be the English translation. But he's always looking for like the sort of simplicity or the clarity of Scripture. I think that's – uh, No, it – I know he his. I mean, I guess in his writing he says lucid brevity, but I don't. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. lucid brevity. That's I think that's yeah. So he's you know, and and I take that to be like Calvin has the same idea, right? So he has the same disagreement with Augustine on the the Good Samaritan. Um, you could tell I've been trying. I've been trying to. So for the Greystone Institute, um, they, they they like want us to like sort of broadly be. Con- you know, we're it's a broadly reformed. I'm a I'm a fellow there, uh, so it's a broadly reformed kind of um, organization. So I'm always trying to connect because these guys know the the they know the reformed uh, thinkers way better than I do. And I'm like I don't know. I'm just the you know I'm an Augustinian guy. I, you know I'm not I'm, I'm less conversant. So but I I tried to follow up on the on on Calvin a little bit on that. But yeah, so. So, I mean, can you go too far on that? I mean, so Augustine, you know, Augustine's rules uh, that that liberals love uh, to quote is that he says, basically, if you're if it teaches you to love God and love neighbor, um, what does it matter? Um, and so I've, yeah, I could see, again, why a liberal kind of theologian might like that. I, I'm using overly simplistic language. Uh, I, I mean, um, I, f- I feel like I can say that I went to Princeton Seminary for my master's in uh, Oklahoma Baptist University for my undergrad, and then I got taught by Jesuits, Augustine. So, like, I can play in all the fields. Uh, but, um, but you know, so they, they're like, okay, yeah, well, love of God, love of neighbor, that's great. I mean, Augustine, though, truthfully, you know, he says that uh, if if there's a sense in which that's not what uh, Luke would have intended or, uh, you know, even like, I guess, Luke quoting Jesus, uh, as long as it's the truth, um, you know, you could, you, you know, he thinks that you'll be judged wrongly if it's not uh, connected, if it's not uh, subservient to the truth. Um, and if it's not ex- like exactly what is meant, like he thinks we will be enlightened on these subjects um, at some point, like he thinks there is a fact of the matter. Um, and so I think one thing that would be you know, the, the tightrope that we have to walk in any of these questions is there the sort of the balance between um, sort of uh, absolute like uh, there's only one reading and there's only one right reading. And then the other extreme that says there's nothing that there's no right reading. There's no one meaning. Um, and so you could basically have the text mean whatever you want. Um, and I think the difficulty that we all have is like, OK, well, what do we do within the middle? Right. Um, so every time you uh, read the scripture, you're interpreting it. Um, and so, you know, and and every time you're translating, I tell I I end up teaching mostly Latin and Greek. Um, but um, and I always tell students like, hey, look, uh, <laughs> there are multiple right answers to a translation. Uh, that's that's just the fact of the matter. And every time you preach, you're translating and interpreting. So there are multiple right answers. That's how language works. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't wrong answers. Um, and so the one way that I would caution someone is, you know, there, there, there is a way to go off the rails. Um, and, and how you know you're on or off the rails is what we're all looking for, right? So the, in my mind, the historical grammatical or uh, someone was telling me, so I think I learned historical grammatical as the word at Princeton. And then there's, there's another, uh, what is the other, the other, there's another way to phrase it. Uh, but anyway, um, so, but the way that you're worried about going off the rails, so the historic, like, you know, the historical grammatical reader says, well, the way that you know that you haven't gone off the rails is if it's within the context and if it's what that person would have intended. And Augustine just says, well, 
that's what the rule of truth is. <laughs> the rule of truth is what's going to be sure that you are on the rails or off the rails, right? Um, and so you don't need some made-up discipline in the last 200 years by a German guy uh, to tell you if what God says is true. Um, and I mean, well, again, actually, Augustine couldn't have said that. Um, but, you know, he does, you know, he's going to say, like, you, you don't need these other strictures that have come about in the last several hundred years to be your guide for truth. Um, and and so, yeah, so that's where he's going to go with that. Um, I have to say I'm probably persuaded, although there is, you know, I guess being aware of your context is important. I love the spice tonight. So this this is <laughs> this has been great. Uh, I, I I already know that there's gonna be several people texting me once they listen to this episode saying I love it. So this is great. Uh, I do well, have... you can you can uh, send the uh, hate mail to me, and I could just dump it in the spam folder. <laughs> so I do have two questions here for the person who's never read any Augustine. What is the place you you say you have to start here? Yeah. And for the person who has read some Augustine, say they've got confessions city of god his work on the trinity the, the like on christian teaching some of the main stuff that is more in circulation where would you point them to be reading yeah um you know i'm always an academic so i'm always going to quote someone else before i say something but um i heard ben myers say uh and he's an australian theologian uh he said that he thought after he read confessions that everything in theology was going to be as compelling um and everything in augustine was going to be compelling and he's like and i was sorely disappointed to find out that that kind of you know, it's really sui generis, right? It's really its own kind of thing. And there's just not much uh, that is uh, as compelling as that is, right? Um, and so there's, you know, um, so all that to say, I mean, yeah, confessions is the gateway drug. Uh, the hard thing is, is um, there's just nothing that kind of hits as hard. Um, and, and so I, yeah, uh, obviously I think you should begin there. Um, I, I reread it once every year or two. Um, and when I have to teach the, uh, an intro to theology class, it's, so I teach at a, I teach at a Catholic Jesuit university that's at this point, um, you know, a lot of our students are not Catholic or Jesuit or Christian. Um, and so I still teach confessions because it's a human text. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's like, no, we don't have anything from the ancient world where someone is so, um, uh, open uh with the things that he's feeling uh sex and uh his anger towards his parents and grief and all these things um so yeah so but if you've read that if you've read uh on christian teaching uh one of them that you didn't name um that's great uh his sermons on the psalms are huge um but they are probably where he develops the idea of the totus christus which is a really important christological doctor or um ecclesiological doctrine and by extension christological doctrine um and so uh so those are those are just great um you know augustine loves the psalms uh more probably more than any other book um, and so I, you know, uh, Gavin Ortland has, uh, yeah, Gavin Ortland. Yeah. has, uh, has the book on Augustine and, and Genesis. Um, he wrote, he wrote on Genesis a lot. Um, I don't find that stuff as interesting, um, as, um, as the Psalms books myself. Um, I'm trying to think of another place that would be, um, I mean, I, you know, I guess this is a this is a sel another selfish plug. I'm part of the team that's finishing up all of his translations of the Donatist controversies. And one of the things that's kind of just interesting to me as a person who was raised in the faith um, is how Augustine so carefully reads scripture. So just following him through an exegetical argument, um, I just, you know, I'm like, you know, he was talking about David and one of these things that I'm translating. Um, and he talks about how, how basically, uh, there are people in the Bible who were not intended intended to imitate, um, who are basically showing us their sin. And he talks about how David shows us his sin. And he says, why? Well, he wanted a woman who wasn't his wife and he wanted to kill the man uh, who he had just slept with. Do you think we're supposed to imitate that? Um, and so he uses that against the Donatist. But you know, I was, I was just like, man, we've been having these conversations about David and Bathsheba for for so long. And so there's there's I don't know, for me, even just even just reading him in a very tedious argument with a Donatist uh, has is so compelling as as a way of saying, like, you know, um, 
just how powerful this these narratives have been uh, for throughout, you know, not only Christian history, but Jewish history. Um, and we're still trying to come to terms with the scriptures. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know. That would be another one that's just like surprised me that even that has been enjoyable. Awesome. So you have a podcast. You Do you also, I can't remember, do you have a website? Uh, yeah. Uh, my, yeah. So uh, it's called a history of Christian theology.com, which is the name of our, uh, podcast. Yeah. Awesome. So what you guys need to do is go find that right now. I'll put yeah. a link in the show notes so you can click yeah. it, go check out all the episodes, keep up with stuff. You, you talk about like farming and stuff too. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Sometimes I wish I was a farmer, but <laughs> I, <laughs> why? We, uh, well, you know, uh, because I've read too much Wendell Berry, I'm sure. Um, but, um, I, yeah, I don't know. We've got, we've got 12 chickens and, uh, we do a lot of gardening and, uh, my sister is trying to get me to go in with her on some chicken tractors. Uh, so, you know, do the Joel Salatin thing. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, well, I have my criticisms about modern economics and our food system. And I, like, I'm just the kind of person who's like, well, if I've got a problem with it, I guess I got to do it myself um, and and stop, you know, complaining about it and do something. Um, and so I don't know. It seemed I, you know, I, I know I overly romanticize it. I know, you know, it's a hard and difficult life. And like my, my it's funny, my grandpa, he was a chicken farmer. His family was a chicken farmer in California. And uh, when we told him we got chickens, he said the exact same thing that you just did. He goes, why? Why would you want chickens? <laughs> he goes, I, I'd work so hard so that your family didn't have to, you know, grow up dependent on chickens. Um, and, you know, so I'm like, yeah, I probably do romanticize it. But that's why I talk about farming, because I'm just I'm just, you know, I guess as a suburban kid, um, we just didn't know uh, what it was like uh, to have an animal and to care for an animal and then to eat it. Um, and I think there's a reason that a lot of really good philosophical reflection comes in being tied to the land. Augustine would say, right, the good life is an ordinary life, an ordered life, an order, life ordered to reality. Um, so I think the land is a place where we learn to be ordered. And so I don't know. So for all of you who listen to the end, you came here to hear about Augustine, but you got a free uh, pitch on why you should be a farmer. So that's great. <laughs> that's right. So Chad, this is... Yeah, sorry this, about that. No, you're good. This has been awesome. Um, so check out his, Chad's stuff. He's doing really cool things. Uh, I appreciate what he's doing. Uh, follow up with his stuff at Greystone. Uh, as you know, if you follow along with our stuff, I think Greystone's awesome. I think all the stuff that they're doing is, that there is really cool. So check out the resources that are there as well. We appreciate you all for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.